So our scripture reading from for this morning is from Psalm 85, and the preaching of God's word comes from this passage. So the psalmist is going to remember the past, and he's going to pray for help in the present, and then he's going to be future-oriented. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. Restore us, O God, with our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. You can just hear the people telling the psalmist, you're an idiot to believe this stuff. Anyway, let's pray. Almighty God, We come to you as the God of history, the God of infinite power and infinite wisdom, the God who has not rewarded us according to our iniquities, but who has dealt with us in grace and mercy. We come to you as a God, O Lord, with whom we must confess our sins. We are sinful like the psalmist. We are sinful like the people to whom Haggai wrote. We live our lives many times preoccupied with ourselves and our own interests. And we are deserving, O Lord, of your wrath and your curse. But in Christ, we have made, made those who are not deserving, but nevertheless who are guaranteed mercy and love, and fellowship, and union, and all these good things that you give to your people. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people who are walk humbly with you, and fear you, but also look to you, and live in our lives in such a way that you might be pleased to bring reformation and revival, if not in our day, in future generations. And we pray, O oh Lord, for your church to grasp this as well, 
and to seek your face and to walk in your ways and not resort to the world and not resort to what man would say in order to get a hearing, but would walk in your ways and in your truth. Give us that grace, O Lord, ourselves, we pray. And forgive us for every time we have compromised by our silence or by our actions or by our words and deeds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a day when Christians are talking about all the problems that we find in our culture, and there are a lot of problems. Those of us who are old enough can remember when the Christian faith was well respected in our land, and the Christian faith was looked upon as something that was good for the culture even though it wasn't perfect and even though it failed in many respects and had a lot of problems. Nevertheless, there was a time when Christians weren't just hated or considered suspect. And certainly a lot of things have happened in our culture and a lot of things have happened in the church. There have been a lot of charlatans that have arisen and the media and other people have paid a lot of attention to a lot of that. Nevertheless, the times we live in now are times of where things are quite frustrating. Psalm 85 is about restoration and revival of the people of God and the need of such. One of the great temptations of the church today is to resort to whatever the world wants. And this is what's happening and has been happening in the church for the last 50 years in evangelical Christendom that we have looked to what the world wants and what people want and what people find unattractive in order to change our message, in order to change the way we do things. And the church has ceased to love the truth of God. So what we must do is we must see that there is a call here. There is a, a remembrance here of times in the past when God has blessed his people and there's a remembrance of that time and then there's a, a prayer here that God would bless today as well. The other thing that we should do as we come to this passage of scripture is not think so much about everybody else being so messed up but we should examine our own lives. None of us are everything that we should be and sometimes we can be very busy looking at the sins of other people in our congregation or the sins of other people within the church at large or the sins of culture and we fail ourselves to walk humbly with God. And if you notice in this passage, the psalmist is a humble guy. In verse 8, he wants to hear what God has to say. And he uh, doesn't want the people to, he wants his godly ones to be faithful. And he wants to be one who fears God. And you and I, if we're, if we're always busy just looking at our culture and everything that's messed up, and if we're only busy looking at all the sins of people in the church, then we're not ourselves walking in humility and the fear of God, seeking to know about our own sins and our own problems. But today, evangelical, if we look at evangelical Christianity, we can become 
very discouraged. Abortion is uh, not even preached against in many evangelical churches. Homosexual marriage, people are trying to understand it and accept it. These are just two examples. We see doctrine, worship, the Christian life reduced to the lowest common denominators. Christians seem to lie and slander and gossip and lust and covet and live complaining lives and being self-oriented with the best of the world. The beatitude would be, blessed are those who hunger and thirst to satisfy themselves, for they will find salvation in life and whatever they choose. Psalm 85 is an important psalm for you and me to understand and to pray and to understand it for the church today as well. And Psalm 85 is not about God's people as a nation like a physical nation. When I say that this is a psalm for God's people, I don't mean the nation of Israel. And when we see these different verses in the scriptures that have to do with the nation that loves God's law and all that, that's not talking about the nation of Israel, and it's not talking about the United States as well. But you look at verse 1, when it says in verse 1, when it says in verse 1, O Lord, you showed favor to your land. When God may have showed favor to his land in the, late, in the nation of Israel, but that doesn't mean that the land here is that nation today. And it doesn't mean the United States. It's talking about the land that we want God to show favor to is the land of his church. It's God's people who are his church. We are the Israel of God today. When it says in verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people, what we want God to do today is to, reserve, is to bring revival and awakening and reformation to his church and forgive the sins of his people today. Who are his people today? Not the nation of Israel. It's not the United States. The, the, the sins of the people, it is, it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Christian. We are the children of Abraham, as the Apostle Paul, as the Apostle Paul teaches. Another good thing that this psalm does is it reminds us that God does act in history. So the psalmist here is praying about this. I was talking to a couple of people a while ago before the worship service, and I mentioned that I was engaged in a conversation on Facebook with a couple of ministers, and they were saying, they were talking about how bad everything was, and nothing could be done about it. Okay, so nothing could be done about it. These men... I would think from what I know about them and other things they say, they certainly have a much higher IQ than I do. But they're not being very smart in regard to the fact of what God has done in history. If we look at history, we see in history that God has done great work. He's brought about revival. He's brought about reformation. He has brought about things when things were bad, when things were terribly bad in his church. He has brought about awakening. When things were terribly bad, even in countries, he has used his church to bring about reformation and revival and to bring good times to those nations. Many times with a lot of problems, but nevertheless, and a lot of suffering to the believers, but nevertheless, God has dealt like that in history. 
And you can read how God did this in history in your Bible as well. You can see him doing it in the Old Testament times, and you can see him doing this in history uh, in with cities and communities and things like that. And the other thing we can say is that God not only brings a revival and awakening to his church, but he also brings it to us individually. And so this is what you see going on here with this fellow in Psalm 85. He begins asking for revival. He begins remembering the past. He asks for reformation. And then he has hope in verse 8 and on. He has hope that God has heard his prayer. And so you and I individually can have hope as well. When times are bad, we as well can go to the Lord. We can pray. We can rise from our prayers. We can end our, uh, have our thoughts such that we are encouraged with what God will do. Now we'll take us through four points here in our outline this morning. The first one is restoration and revival. Remember, the Lord has done this before. Reformation and revival, remember. The psalmist begins his prayer by remembering a wonderful event in the history of God's people when they had been under God's chastening, and yet God, in a remarkable and obvious way, had acted to bless his people. It's believed by many commentators that this is probably what happened when the God's people were in captivity and Nehemiah and others returned to Jerusalem to build the wall in verses 1 through 3. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turn away from your burning anger. This was something remarkable, that these people were in captivity, and yet a, a foreign power who had them in captivity felt sympathy for their religion, for their cause, and they allowed Nehemiah to return to build the wall. The wall was completed in Jerusalem. It had been torn down. This wall had been torn down. It represented God's people. It said to people who passed by that their God was powerless and that he wasn't worthy of the wall or the temple or the city or anything like that. The wall was completed. And we read in Nehemiah, the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Eul in 52 days. And it came about when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it. They lost their confidence and they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This city, this may not sound like much, but this was something very significant. They faced a lot of enemies. They were subject to a foreign power. And this work that God performed was a significant work. And the psalmist remembers this. He remembers that the Lord acted this way. He remembers the Lord was had shown mercy. Our God is a God who restores. Our God is a God who shows favor and forgives and covers sins. He does this with individuals. He does this with groups. And He does this in history. There are times when He withdraws His anger and He ends His chastening. He saves the most unlikely people. And He brings them unto Himself. Look at what He did with the Apostle Paul. 
look at what he's done at other times in history. If we're students of history and what God has done, we have to see that at different times he has done just that. <coughs> you and I, we read the news. We read financial information. We see all the heavies out there who control this money and that money and, and all this other stuff. We see how influential they are over the culture and over government and all these other things. All the people who are have made all the money in technology and who who become wealthy just through the whole COVID crisis. What would happen if God converted one or two of these people, the people of influence? And I don't mean converted them to the sense of where they would just have happy thoughts and give a little donation, but I meant soundly converted them to where their influence was really to be seen. Now, I don't want to take anything away from God's message to the ordinary person who has no money or who is down and out. Everyone is creating the image of God and we should witness to everyone. We should, we should pray for the salvation of everyone. We should be His witnesses in our daily lives. But what I am saying is we don't know what God is going to do. You and I don't know what He's going to do. We know what He's capable of doing, but we don't know what His will is. The second thing we see is restoration and revival requested. This is what the psalmist does in verses 4 through 7. Restore us, O God, of our salvation and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Can you pray that prayer? Can you pray that prayer for God's church today or do you think everything's too far gone? Can you pray that prayer for our nation or for China or for Russia or for Brazil? Can you pray that prayer for believers in other places? Can we pray this prayer? We have to assume probably or presume that the people's hearts have grown cold and dull. If you and I are not anxious for God's glory and His honor in the earth, then we're in the same boat that they are. The, sixth, the second part of verse 6 says that your people may rejoice in you. It doesn't seem like they were rejoicing. They weren't rejoicing in the results he's praying for, but maybe they weren't rejoicing at all anyway. We as they need restoration and revival and reviving. The very fact that too often our lives are filled with worry and anxiety and discontent, piling up of things to do, and we fail to become, we fail to seek the Lord, and we fail to seek Him by prayer that He would do this work. Too many times our lives are like those believers we read about a while ago in Haggai who were so preoccupied with their own lives that they were not concerned for reformation and revival and awakening in His church. That's what we're supposed to be. I mean, here we are. There are other churches around here. Why in the world are we doing what we're doing? Are we just gluttons for punishment to come in here and set all this up and do all this stuff? And, and what are we? Are we crazy? No, it's because we want to see revival. We want to see awakening. We want to see 
the truth of God with unfettered and strong. We want to see him raise up a strong testimony to his truth. That is our desire. That's our, the ministry that we're even supposed to have even with one another. There's a passage there in Scripture. There's a, there's a reference there to Ephesians 4. And Ephesians 4 talks about the ministry that you and I are to have with one another within the body of Christ. Our first concern should be among ourselves that we are those who are walking in Christ. And then we should pray for reformation within the church at large as well. We want revival. We want reformation. We want restoring of our own body. But we want this for the church at large. Some people have neat formulas for prayer. And we think that if we pray a certain way and do a certain thing, then God has to do certain things. That's not true. But there is a passage of Scripture that people often refer to in Second Chronicles about praying. And most of the time when they bring up this passage of Scripture, they use it incorrectly. They use this passage of Scripture as though it's written from the United States. It's not written from the United States. It's written for God's people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. And it's written in the New Testament. It's written for us now as the Israel of God, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the promise that was given to uh, Solomon in, at the time of the temple. And this was the promise given to Solomon about the, that the church can claim today if the church would do this. <coughs> then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's a promise to the church. That's a promise to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house and my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Where is the temple of God today? Is it in Jerusalem? Where is the temple of God? The temple of God is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul teaches. We are God's temple. Individually believers and corporately as a, bunch, as a group of believers. We are the temple of God. This is the promise for us to pray. This is the promise for us to live. This is the promise for us to plead with God to heaven. For us to repent and to seek His face and look for His blessings. But it's not real popular. I mean, the people who want to politicize this will use it for politics and and that's misusing it. And then preachers and other church leaders fail to use it for the local church and for denominations 
because they don't want to tell anybody about their sin and they don't want to admit to their own sin. They don't want to seek the face of God. And that's why we need to pray it even more. And we need to be careful that we're not throwing stones at everybody else, but that we are praying and humbling ourselves as well. Finally, it's right restoration and revival realized. The Lord can do it again. The Lord can do it again. The psalmist is not saying that the Lord has to act at a certain time, but he knows this much. Besides God being a God who chastens, he is also loving and gracious. And sooner or later, he will answer the prayers of his people. That's what he's saying here, okay? He's not saying, okay, God, I give you till Thursday. He's not going to say, okay, God, I give you to year after next. That's not what he's saying. He knows that built into the character of God is his love and his care for his people. And if they pour out their hearts, if they repent of their sins, if they cry out unto him, he will hear. He is not deaf. That's good theology. He will hear eventually, and he will bless his people. He will bring peace. I will hear what the Lord of God will say. He will speak peace to His people, to His godly ones. He will speak peace to them in their relationship to Him and in their relationship to each other. But let them not turn back in folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. The glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth is met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know where you'll hear those verses? You'll hear those verses in political speeches. I've heard those verses all my life. Presidents put them in their speeches and they, they think it's so wonderful. I quote from the Bible. I'll get the Christians to vote for me. It's out of the Old Testament. I'll get the Jews to vote for me. All right. They don't even understand what it's about. They're not humbling themselves. They don't even understand what it's about. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and he will make his footsteps into a way. You know, God has done this at different times in history. He's brought about revival. He's brought about awakening. I said all we got to do is study history. And we see him doing this. And he did this in part there with Nehemiah and these others. And he did it in part when they got the temple rebuilt. And he did it when Jesus came. When we read of Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ comes, and real grace and truth come. Christ comes, the gospel is preached, the, the, the gospel goes forth. The, the gospel is preached to every tribe and nation and goes out. This is the glory and the character that God will show to us as well. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So grace and truth are seen in Christ. The promise is that this will be seen in us as well because of Christ. A while ago I said the temple of God is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not a building across the sea. Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. That is what you are. That's spoken to them collectively. And then individually, this is said of us. Or do you not know that your body is a temple and the Holy Spirit 
who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you have been brought with the price. Therefore glorify your God in your body. Where is the temple of God today? It is in his church and his individual people. You remember what Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they got all mad at him because he was speaking about his resurrection. And where is where what, what did the temple mean to people? It meant that that's where the presence of God is. And what did Jesus say before he ascended? He said, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And where is the Holy Spirit today? The Holy Spirit is in his church. He's in believers. And we are the temple of God. The application of this is that it's wrong for us to go around with long faces and pessimistic attitudes about God showing favor to his people and bringing about restoration and reviving. You and I may think we have superior discernment to understand the times and the nature of sin, but what we forget is the nature of God. God's hands aren't tied. His mouth is not gagged. The psalmist says he will speak peace to his people. With the psalmist, we should pray and we should keep praying that the Lord will hear and answer our prayers, that he will bring revival and we will bring awakening. We all like to hear those missionary stories, don't we? About how one or two generations labored and prayed and saw no fruit then the next generation sees a great harvest. And we say to ourselves, what a wonderful story. What a wonderful story. The only problem is, we don't want to be in that first and second generation. We want to be in the third generation. If we can't have it now, if we can't have now what we pray for, we might as well not pray for it. You and I must not live or think that way. The Lord is loving and gracious. He delights in blessing His people. He delights in seeing His glory before the world. Let me tell you something. That's who He is. He loves to see His glory before the world. He does. You remember with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, okay? So God's people forsake, forsake God. What does He do with Nebuchadnezzar? It makes him like an animal. Why? Because at the end, Nebuchadnezzar is going to declare God's glory to, to all the world that he's ruling over. God is concerned for his own glory. We shouldn't be surprised at that. It's true. And God has love for his people. And he hears our prayers. This is who he is. He is not weak. We're the ones who are weak. He laughs. That's what Psalm 2 says. He laughs at those people who think they are opposing him. You know what? And there is so much for God to laugh about this morning in our land and even in his church to those who deny him. He laughs at those who oppose him. Finally, restoration and revival, the recipients of this I've already mentioned our his church, his people, God's people. Verse 6, his people who will rejoice in him. It is those who, in verse 8, he speaks peace to. 
in verse 9, those who revere him, who fear him. This is, these are the recipients of his grace and of his restoration and of his blessing. And these are the people that we need, this is how we need to walk before him. Seeking his favor, praying for restoration, revival, and reformation, walking ourselves humbly with him, keeping his ways, confessing our sins, and living with a life of expectancy for what he is pleased to do. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your love and favor to us. And we pray, O Lord, that you would forgive us for small thoughts about you. Forgive us when we are so caught up in ourselves that we don't see others around you who are lost and going to hell and who need the gospel. Forgive us when we are so caught up in ourselves that we look upon our own happiness and comfort as the supreme end in life. We pray, O Lord, that you would bring revival and refreshing and restoration to our lives individually, to this particular church, and to your church at large. And we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We ask forgiveness for the very small thoughts that we have of you. In Jesus' name, amen.